paragraph 71. If you don't, you'll want to uh, have your Bible open to Mark 6, Matthew 14, and Luke 9. In our outlines, if you have your outlines, we're on page 7, and we are concluding Roman numeral 3, which is the controversy over the king, and we're looking at letter I, the death of the herald, paragraph 71. Okay? When we look at John's ministry, that is John the Immerser, John the Baptizer, we know that John had a very active ministry for 12 to 14 months. Now he is in jail for two years. So at this point, his ministry is inactive. Still his ministry, as he bears testimony uh, to the Lord for his, in his sufferings. But if you consider the two years he's in prison, plus the 12 to 14 months of active ministry, he has a three-year ministry for the most part. John was in prison because he proclaimed the wrong marriage between Herod Antipas and Herodias. Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great. And he was now the Tetrarch of Galilee. Herodias was the granddaughter of Herod the Great by another son, a son that Herod Antipas had killed. Herodias, by the way, was first married to an uncle, which violated the Mosaic law. She left her uncle and became a mistress to a step-uncle. Then she married Antipas while her first husband... Philip was still living. So she was guilty of triple, triple adultery and two counts of incest. But who's counting? <laughs> now John spoke out against this. And because he spoke out against this, she convinced her husband to have John arrested. But she could not talk Herod into having John executed. And that's because Herod respected John. Now look at Mark's account in verse 17. It says, Herod himself had sent forth, laid hold upon John, bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For he, Herod Antipas, had married her. And John said unto Herod, it was not lawful for him to have his brother's wife. And thus in verse 19, Herodias set herself against John desired to kill him, but she could not. Because Herod feared John. He respected John. And he respected him because in verse 20, he was a righteous man. Further, he was a holy man. And so he decided that he would at least keep him safe out of Herodias' way. But now in verse 21, Herod had a birthday party. Mark's account. And when a convenient day was come that Herod, on his birthday, he had a supper for his rulers and lords and high captains and the chief men of Galilee. And so the daughter of Herodias came, and he da she danced for Herod. And Herod, probably a little inebriated, or a lot, and not really thinking about things, because he was so enamored with her dance, he simply said, verse 22, Ask whatever you will, and I'll give it to you. Well, Herodias didn't know, Herodias' daughter, her name is Salome, did not know what to ask for. 
So she asks her mother what she ought to ask for. You look at verse 23. Whoever you ask of me, I'll give it to you, Herod said. And she went out and said unto her mother, what shall I ask? And the mother said, ask for the head of John the Baptist. So in verse 25, she came in straightway immediately to the king and said, I want you to give me John's head. Now, verse 26, the king was exceedingly sorry. But because he had made this promise publicly in the ear of for everyone to hear, of them that sat at meat, he could not reject her. And so in verse 27, the king immediately sent forth his guards, a soldier of his guard, and commanded to bring his head, and he went and beheaded John in prison. And he gave it to Salome, and Salome gave it to her mother. Now, verse 29, we read that when John's disciples heard this, they came, took up his corpse, and they gave it a formal and honorable burial. Now, what happens here, and remember, one of the themes that we've been watching throughout is that whatever happens to the herald happens to the king. So what happens to John would happen to the Messiah. And so what happens here is that John was beheaded for personal reasons that Herodias didn't like what he had said, but the charge was political because he spoke out against Herod Antipas and Herodias's marriage. So similarly, what happens to John is what's going to happen to Yeshua in that he will be executed for personal reasons. The whole idea that Yeshua was executed because he didn't bring peace, he didn't destroy the Romans, is far from the biblical record. You see that in a lot of stories, a lot of books, a lot of movies, but it's nowhere to be found in Scripture. What you find in Scripture is the Jewish leaders saw to it that Yeshua would die because Yeshua rejected their traditions the traditions of the elders, the traditions of the fathers. He rejected Mishnaic law. And that they were offended by. So they're going to trump up political charges. He claims to be the Messiah or that he said he was God or that he has a demon. There's going to be all these other charges. But the reality is that he is going to be executed over personal reasons because of their confrontation with him. And so, while this event demonstrates this theme, what happens to the herald happens to the king, it also is an event that launches Yeshua's, uh, or the events in Yeshua's life, it launches them in the direction of his death. So from this point on, Yeshua begins to move towards his own coming death in light of the fact that John had just been executed. Now, we turn to paragraph 72, page 85 in the text, Mark 6, Luke 9, Matthew 14, John 6. We then move into the fourth section of the life of Messiah, the training of the twelve by the Messiah. And this section is going to cover paragraphs 72 through 95. The training of the twelve. And he's preparing the twelve 
disciples for their ministry, at least 11 of the 12, but he's preparing the 12 for the ministry that they will conduct in his absence as recorded in the book of Acts. So in paragraph 72, we, we are uh, introduced to this miracle of Yeshua's, the feeding of the 5,000. What is unique about this miracle is that this is the only miracle of Yeshua's that is recorded by all four writers of the life of Messiah. It's the only miracle in which all four of them cover it. You'll see three or two cover other miracles, but it's the only miracle in which all four write about. Also, this miracle is the fourth of the seven sign miracles that John records. Remember, John has seven miracles, seven discourses, seven I am statements. So in this event, we have the fourth of his seven sign miracles. And the purpose of this miracle is to teach the twelve the nature of the ministry that will be entrusted to them. In other words, this miracle will provide instruction concerning divine provision so that their ministry will be a ministry in which they are to depend upon God to provide for them. And here Yeshua is trying to teach them to rely upon God's providence and God's provision. So in John's account, beginning in verse 4, John writes, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jewish people, was at hand. This is the third Passover that John records in the life of Messiah. It marks the, seventh, the second year of Yeshua's public ministry, and it inaugurates his third. So with this event, we have the final year of Yeshua's ministry launched. As the 5,000 gather, Yeshua comments to his disciples privately because the lessons are primarily for them. But among the masses who follow Yeshua... There is a large following, despite the fact that the Jewish leaders have attempted to explain away his miracles and to see that less individuals would follow after him. But what we find here is that the masses are following. In fact, the text tells us that 5,000 men were gathered, not counting the women or the children. So there's a mass of people that are following him, despite the fact that the Jewish leadership has been attempting to squelch those who would be following him. Now what we find here is that they are following him primarily because of the signs he has been performing, the miracles he has been doing. And what we will learn in paragraph 76, or what's recorded in John chapter 6, is that the majority of these people are following him for the wrong reason. He doesn't tell us what the reason is here, but in paragraph 76, John 6, they're following him because they want him to continue to provide all the things they would like him to provide them with, namely food, without having to work for it. So they're following him for the wrong reasons. He's going to challenge why it is they're following him, and as a result, at the end of chapter 6, many of his disciples will not follow him anymore. Now, when the text says many of his disciples did not follow him, he doesn't mean the twelve, but he means all of those outside the twelve who are already following after him. So now in Mark's account, verse 34, it says that when Yeshua looks out on this crowd, he sees them as sheep not having a shepherd. 
So they are shepherdless. And the, re- and the reason he sees them this way is because the people don't know who to follow. Should they follow the Jewish leaders and reject Messiah? Or should they follow Messiah and reject the leadership? Those are the only two options that are open to the masses. And they're just not sure. So he sees them in this quandary, needing to make a decision without any leaders leading them in the way that they should go. Or I should say, without the Jewish leadership leading them in the right way. So Yeshua is aware of uh, the personal need that the masses have, the need to be fed. And as he looks out on the crowd, he fulfills his ministry as a rabbi to the masses as typically would been uh, extended to them. He does three things as a rabbinical leader. First of all, he's teaching them and he's going to lead us into his first, uh, not first, well, uh, what is it, the third or fourth of his discourses, which will be on the bread of life. But when he teaches on the bread of life, he'll introduce us to the first of his seven I am statements. I am the bread of life. So he's going to teach them. And he's teaching his disciples personally about the need to, to depend upon God to provide for them. And we'll see that in a minute. The second thing he does is he tends to their needs. So he's going to tell them to sit. He's going to tell them to listen. And then he's thirdly going to feed them. So he's going to provide for their needs. Now, in John's account, in verse 6, Yeshua, first of all, addresses Philip. And in verse 6, he says, Philip, where are we to buy uh, bread, that, or verse, the end of verse 5, where are we to buy bread that these may eat? Now, one of the reasons he's asking Philip is because this is Philip's territory. This is the area in Galilee from, which he, where, from where he has come. So Philip is aware, because he responds in verse 6, although we're told Yeshua said this to prove him, to test him. He wants to teach him about trusting God for provision. So he's asking him, where can we get some food for all of these thousands of people? We got 5,000 men. If each one has a wife, we got 10,000 adults. If each of them have, uh, what, uh, two children, we got 20,000 people that are sitting uh, in this area. So he's asking him, knowing full well how he's going to provide, but to test Philip as one of the disciples. He wants to teach him that he was hoping he would say, well, Lord, you're going to provide for them. You're the Messiah. You can do this. I trust you. I believe in you. I can't wait to see it. But he doesn't say that. Philip answers and said, you know, Yeshua, I know this area. And first of all, There's not enough food in this area to feed all of these people. But even if there was enough food in this area, 200 denarii is not enough money to provide enough bread in order to feed everyone here. Now, one denarii was equal to a day's wages. So Philip is saying 200 days wages, a year's wages is not going to pay us enough to get enough food, even if we can provide enough food. So I don't know. And then Andrew is brought in. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said unto him, and he was very helpful. He says, well, you know, there's a little kid over here who's got five loaves and two fishes, but, you know, I don't know what we're going to do with that. But there's some food here. And uh, so 
Andrew is uh, not too helpful, but he's always like bringing people to Yeshua, right? He brings Peter to him, and now he brings this young man. And then when the Greeks come, we'd like to see Yeshua. It's Andrew says, you know, he's over here or whatever. But Andrew, I think there's three accounts in which he does that. And so now Yeshua wants to teach them three lessons that they're to be responsible for as they conduct their ministry in Yeshua's absence. He's going to entrust this ministry to them. And these are good things for leaders in any congregation or any church to take note of. First, if you look at Luke's account, verse 13, he says, But he said unto them, Give you, give ye them to eat. First of all, he says they are responsible to feed the people. They have to provide for the people. Secondly, if you look at John's account, verses 5 through 9, as we saw, he said, uh, there's a lad here, which, is it John's account? Uh, which has two fishes, but what are these among so, so many? He wants to remind them that they are incapable of doing it themselves. So in a way, I think this was his plan for Andrew to point out this man, this young lad, and showing them that through natural means, you're not going to be able to do this job. You're not going to be able to carry on this work depending on your own resources. You need to have supernatural resources to do this work. So you won't be able to do it on your own. And then in Matthew's account, verse 19, he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass, and he took the five loaves, the two fish, and he looked up to heaven. He blessed, he broke it, and he gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave it to the multitudes. I think a great lesson that they're being taught here is that they are responsible to distribute what the Lord does provide. And so that, that's a good point, too, because there's always people in need. But no one local assembly can necessarily meet all of those needs. But the Lord does entrust certain provisions to every congregation, and now they have to be wise in how they distribute those resources because they can only distribute what God entrusts them with. So if, for example, we have a benevolent fund and there's X number of dollars in it, and there's a there are requests from a variety of people that exceeds that amount, we have to really think, what do we do? We can only utilize the resources we have. That's what we're responsible for. But we have to ask, does God want us to trust Him to provide over and above that? Those are always tricky things. And uh, But... This is the lesson, and this is the nature of the ministry. You know, you can't just say, oh, we can't do anything. No. We are responsible to take care of the people. We are responsible to do this in the power of God. And we are responsible to distribute the resources God has entrusted to us. And we are to look to Him sometimes to multiply those resources so that they can exceed even what we might otherwise think. Sometimes He does, sometimes He doesn't. And so we have to be sensitive to those things. But this is the lesson they need to learn. And Acts chapter, what is it, 2 or 3, really comes right to mind, doesn't it? When the disciples, Peter and John or whoever, are sitting at the beautiful gate, and in walks a man and asks them for some money. He can't walk, a beggar or whatever it is. And he says, silver and gold we don't have any of, but what we do have is the resource, you know, uh, to rise up and walk or something. And he's able to rise up and walk. So we have to rely upon him, use the resources he's given to us, and sometimes he gives us over and above, and we find even greater things than, than what we expect happen. 
Now, here's the neat thing about that, because in Mark's account, verse 43, after they fed everyone, they had leftovers. And they took up the broken pieces and now 12 baskets full and also of the fishes. So now they end up with 12 baskets. It's almost like God will also provide for you, you know. And so they have some more fish and bread for themselves and to share with others, no doubt. What began with five loaves and two fish ended up providing leftovers of 12 baskets full. And as I said, we had 5,000 men and who knows how many others were there. And so the lesson is they have to rely upon the Lord to make provision for them. We look at paragraph 73 and we're, this is Mark 6, Matthew 14, John 6 where we read of Messiah's rejection of the Galileans' attempt to make him king. So having received all of the food without having done anything to earn it or to work for it or to strive for it, the people now want to make him the king of Galilee. Well, I would too, you know. And uh, in John's account, verse 15, Yeshua therefore perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force... That's wild, isn't it? They, they weren't just asking him. They were saying, you are going to be our king. you know. But Yeshua rejects the offer for three reasons. Take a look at Mark, um, uh, excuse, yeah, Mark's account, verse 45 and 46. First of all, he rejects it. He says, and straightway he constrained his disciples to enter into the boat, go before him unto the other side, to Bethsaida, while he himself sent the multitudes away. And after he had taken leave of them, he departed into the mountain to pray. Now, let me just say a couple of things. Three things. First of all, number one, there's the unpardonable sin. That was already committed. We've talked about that a number of times. Matthew 12, paragraph 61. Those are the key passages to re- always remember because that is the interpreting uh, event that transforms the Messiah's ministry from that of proclaiming himself as Messiah to no longer proclaiming himself as Messiah, but ministering on the basis of personal need and on the basis of faith. And his teaching ministry is no longer to try to convince people he's the Messiah, he's been rejected, but rather to train the twelve. So first of all, he rejects this offer to be king because of the unpardonable sin. But the second reason he must reject it is because the Messiah, according to the prophets, was not to be enthroned in Galilee, but to be enthroned in Jerusalem, in David's city. And then thirdly, the multitude was motivated to make Yeshua king for the wrong reason. And the reason is so they could have more food without having to work for it. And we'll see that later in John 6, verses 22 to 71. So he refuses this, and then he sends his disciples across the Galilee over to Bethsaida. And that leads us to paragraph 74, uh, Mark 6, Matthew 14, again, John 6. And here we have the training of the disciples through the storm. This is the fifth of John's seven signs that he records. Now, notice the circumstances of the event. First of all, we're told that it was during sunset. You see this in John's account, verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down into the sea and they entered into the boat. The second thing, if you look at Mark's account, verse 47, and Matthew's account, verse 24, they are in the middle of the lake. So it's like 
They're not near the shore. They're right in the middle. So I think its, it's longest point is nine miles. I think the Sea of Galilee, its longest points north to south is nine miles. And at its widest points, I think it's six miles. So they're in the middle. They've got to go three, they got to row three miles. And the third thing we're told is they've been wrestling with this storm for nine hours. See this in Matthew 25. And in the fourth watch. So that's like three, any sometime between three and six o'clock in the morning. So they started out around evening, sunset, six o'clock at night, say. And now it's three to six o'clock in the morning. There's somewhere between nine and 12 hours. They've been fighting this storm and rowing like crazy. Because we're told that in verse 18 of John's account, they were totally hopeless and beyond uh, hope. Verse 18, the sea was rising by reason of the great, wind, the great wind that blew. Verse 19, and when therefore they had rowed about five, tw- uh, 25 or 30 furlongs, they'd been rowing for nine hours, they were getting exhausted. And they were fearful and they were frightened. If you look at verse 48, it says, When Yeshua saw them, he saw them in distress, rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. It was like every direction they went into, they were finding it impossible to get to shore. Now, I don't know how many of you, uh, and by the way, in verse 26 it says, And they cried out for fear as Yeshua comes. Again, I don't know how many of you have sailed. But like I said, I've, I've sailed quite a bit. Uh, well, as I think about it, probably somewhere around 10, 12 years that I've been able to sail out on the water and out on the ocean. And there were many a storm that we had encountered. I'll never forget, there were, there were a number of them. One of them we picked, our storm. We were trying to learn how to deal with storms. And so we did a lot of reading on it. And we'd go out on the boat in good weather and we'd go through the motions. What do we do? We had a little 24-footer, so it wasn't that big a boat. But we took this baby out on the ocean and we sailed down to North Carolina and we circumnavigated the Delmarva Peninsula and we were all over the Chesapeake and into various rivers and uh, uh, coves and et cetera and just, just loved it. And of course, we loved the challenge of trying to get this boat, you know, and keep this boat sailing uh, wonderfully, and she sailed great. She was a really great boat. So, when we were learning about storms, we were uh, reading about it, and then we'd go out during good weather, and we'd say, "Okay, Gary, your responsibility is you got to get down the headsail. So you're going out on the deck, and I'm going to drop the headsail." Now our boat had hanks on it, you know, so it wasn't self-furling stuff. You had to go out on the deck, and you untied the ha- the halyard, and the thing would just drop down. Uh, along the uh, forestay, along the headstay, right? And the sail would come down. Then you got to wrap it up, tie it up along the lifelines so that the thing isn't flying all over the place or it catches wind and then dr- drives you over. So that thing's coming down. So that was my job. Brian's job was to be in the back, making sure that the main is coming down if need be, and that the boat is sailing into the wind because when those storms come, you want to face into the wind because that stands you up. You don't want to be against the wind. You know, you want to constantly be trying to go into the wind so that you're, you're staying up, right, not getting thrown over. 
So we went through these motions. We said, okay, we know what we're doing. We know what we're doing. So now we have to find a storm to do it in, you know. So we're listening to the weather, and we're here, and this is in the middle of, of the summer because in the Chesapeake Bay, you know, things get very humid, and it gets very hot, and then these storms all of a sudden sneak up on you, and you don't even realize it. In fact, some things, uh, these things happen that are called, what are they called? They are not squalls, but these, these air pockets will actually drop from the sky, you know, at like 50 miles an hour, and it will be localized in a small area, and they can just turn a boat over. And there were uh, stories, you know, in Baltimore, you know, you'd have these tourists come, and they'd go through Baltimore Harbor, you know, from the, uh, one of the forts where the, you know, Star Spangled Banner was written and all that is on one side, and then you got the constellation on another. So you take these, uh, these taxi boats that go across, and they're not all that safe. And you're supposed to put on, you know, like a life jacket or whatever, but nobody does it because you're only going to be on it for five minutes. Well, there was a, uh, an event in which these guys went out, and one of those things hit. Knocked over some boats. A couple of people died. They were drowned. They didn't have their life jackets on. Didn't know how to swim, and they couldn't find them. You know, so these things just explode uh, in a moment. You have no idea when they're going to hit. Well, we were listening to the news and the weather, and they're reporting, "Hey, we got squalls coming down the Severn River, and we got these bombs and stuff that are hitting." And Brian and I look at each other. You know, we didn't tell Mary Lou. We look at each other, and uh, we said. Let's go. So we go out in the water. Everyone's coming in, right? So we're going out. And we go out. We go out into the bay, and we could see this, this squall coming right. We're, in, we're right at the, the uh, mouth of the bay, you know. So here's the bay, and you see this river, and you could see the thing coming right down, you know, this dark cloud. And you see these boats that are out there, and they're getting thrown over. And so as we're seeing this, we're saying, okay, everybody know what they're doing. Brian says, okay, Gary, get up there, you know, so I got all my rain gear on and whatnot. I'm on the deck, and I'm dropping this thing, you know. And just as I tied the thing up, you know, the sail up to the line, it hits us. And it's like, you know, just a sheet of water just go whoosh, coming down here. And the, the boat starts, you know, going like this, and the rigging is, you know, shaking. The spreaders are going, and the power of this thing just hits, right? And it's only, it only lasted about 20 seconds, 30 seconds. It was that quick. And I had all this rain gear. I'm telling you, I had a full thing on with my leggings inside my boots. I had a hat on. You know, I got this thing bundled up. And when it was all done, I was soaking wet in and out. You know, I was just boom. You know, I was like, I just took a shower. And Brian, he's in the back, and he's like, you know, he's like all flushed because we don't have any Dodgers or anything. We're just out. You know, it's just a totally open thing. That was just one of many experiences. One time, we were sailing around the Delmarva, all the way up the bay, across a uh, channel, into the Delaware Bay, out offshore in the ocean, and then back up the bay by uh, Yorktown, not Yorktown, but I don't know what, what's down there. And the Naval Station is all there. And when we came in, our engine conked out on us. So there was no, no power. The, the wind stopped. So we threw the anchor over because the, the tide was taking us back out into the ocean. So we threw it out to wait until the tide would shift. Tide shifts. We start going back in. And when we got back into the bay, a storm hits. And for the next four days, 
24 hours for four straight days, we just had to sail the boat in the storm because we didn't have an, uh, an engine, so we couldn't go into one of the rivers and anchor because we didn't think we could get out. So we decided, well, you know, we're just going to shift around. And what we did, as I think about this, so crazy. What we did was, we, because again, we don't have any dive, we don't have anything covering us. We're sitting on the boat, and we would just, we'd get so tired that we'd sit in the cockpit, and we'd take a line, and we would just tie, our, tie ourselves down into, onto the boat, right? And we would be sitting out there. The winds are blowing, the rain is just coming, but you're so tired. You just sit there, and you got the, wa- the line on you, you're holding it, and you just fall asleep. It was the weirdest thing. And then if there was an emergency, I'd hear Brian would say, Gary, you got to get up and help me. And i go, oh, what? What's going on? You know? And then I'd be able to help him. Well, when the four days, we did this for 24 hours, couldn't stop. And then finally, when, this, when the storm stopped, we're sitting in the boat, and Brian says, I'm so tired, I'm going below, I'm going to sleep. I said, no problem, I got it. So I'm sitting in there, and I've got the helm. And I'm sailing, trying to keep the boat straight. And, you know, I started nodding out. And I'd nod out, and the boat would go, you know, because the boat's going to go crazy if you do that. So I just nodded out, and I, and I have no idea what's going on. The next thing you hear is the sail just whop, you know, something like that. And I go, oh, what happened? And then Brian would go, what are you doing? I said, I got it, Brian, everything's okay. And I'd hold the, the helm again, and we'd start sailing, and then I'd fall asleep. And we just limped back up the bay. When I read something like this, I mean, you know, now we're on a, a boat built in 1965. It's an old boat, too. But they're in this ancient boat, you know, and they're just rowing like crazy for like 12 hours. And you got to wonder, how did these guys endure it, you know, and how frightened they must have been because they're at their wit's end. There's no more strength left in them, and they figure they're going down. You know, this is the end of the line. And it's right then that the text tells us that uh, Yeshua comes walking on the water uh, toward them. Now, what's amazing is, you know, last time they struggled with a storm, Yeshua was in the boat with them. Okay, he was asleep. He wasn't much help. But he was in the boat with them, right? And he's asleep, and they could at least say, well, Yeshua's here as long as he's here. we got nothing to worry about, you know. And if we do, we just wake him up. But on this occasion, he's not there. Right? They're all alone. They're on their own. I can imagine they must have been yelling at each other. Come on, Peter, pull that thing. Oh, I'm tired. Stop being a baby. Pull that thing. You know? Or they're probably you know, just going crazy like that. And so Yeshua's not in the boat, number one. Number two, the disciples, they're all alone, right? And they're filled with fear. Until Yeshua tells them, John verse 20, he says, It is I, be not afraid. He's telling them to be calm. By the way, this is kind of an interesting thing. If you look at um, verse 20, it is I, be not afraid. You look at Mark's account, verse 50, it is I, be not afraid. If you look at Matthew's account, verse 27, be of good cheer. I don't know how, you know, <laughs> you're going to rejoice over this. You know? But it says, be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. But the Greek literally says, I am, be not afraid. You would like that. You know? He doesn't say, it is I. In all accounts, he simply says, I am. Be not afraid. I mean, he's making a claim to deity. It's very clear. So uh, when Yeshua, so Yeshua comes, he calms things down. And when Peter sees him walking on the water, Matthew's account, verse 28, it said that, and Peter answered and said, Lord, if it is you, allow me to come up 
come up unto thee on the waters. And the Lord says, come. And Peter goes down from the boat and he walked uh, on the waters to come to come to Yeshua. As long as his eyes were on the Messiah, he was okay. But when somebody in the boat said to him, hey, Peter, watch out for that wave. Here it comes. And he looked. He was in trouble. Because it does say the waves were rising, right? And Matthew says that when he took his eyes off the Lord, great verse, verse 31, Lord, save me. And the Lord stretches forth his hands and took him and said unto him, here's the, here's the lesson, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? You know, you need to trust me and you need to rely upon me. And he's right there with them. Well, I'm not going to criticize Peter, but that's the lesson he wants him to learn. Verse 51, it says, And he went up unto them into the boat, and the wind ceased. They were amazed, for they understood not. That's the point. They didn't learn the lesson of God's provision by the multiplication of the loaves. He said they didn't understand concerning the loaves, but their heart was hardened. And so the first lesson was the Lord will provide. Second lesson is the Lord will provide. Or the Lord, in this case, his provision is he will protect them. In verse 33, Matthew's account, And they that were in the boat worshipped him, saying of a truth, you are the Son of God. Now here's a case in which their theology was right on. They had a good theology. They recognized Yeshua to be the Messianic Son of God. But they had a faulty application. They failed to apply it to their lives. They did not accept this. And thus they were filled with fear. But what the disciples needed to remember is that for their future ministry, they need to rely upon Him and trust Him. And they ought to have known that the Lord would not have allowed them to go down because He's already called them to carry on this ministry. So they knew if He, you know, like Abraham... He said, and you shall your descendants be multiplied. And then when he tells him to offer up his son, he said, well, he's got to do something about this promise. So I know that my son can't stay dead. He's got to resurrect him, right? Because he promised me. Well, that's Abraham. So the disciples, they know the Lord's called them to serve. So they ought to have known that the Lord can't now say, well, I was only kidding. You know, you're going down. So, uh, but in any case, they needed to trust him. In paragraph 75, Looking at Mark's account, chapter 6, Matthew 14, they come into the, they cross over into the Gentile territory, unto Gennesaret. That's where he had healed the individual that was possessed of those demons, the legion. He's back in Gentile side of the lake. And note all the miracles he provides for the Gentiles, right? Because he was rejected by Israel. He's not doing the miracles anymore like he did for them when he was trying to demonstrate himself, but only individuals on personal need. And we're seeing that on the basis of faith. But the Gentiles hold different story. So it says in verse 35, And when the men of that place knew him, they sent all around the region round about, and they brought unto him all their sick, and they besought him that they might only touch the border of his garment, and as many as touched him were made whole. Mark says, Whoever he entered into the village or into a city or into the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces, they besought him that they might touch him, that they might be made whole. So among the Gentile areas, things are you know, really hopping. But among the Jewish areas, things are not because the Jewish leadership 
has rejected him as the Messiah. In paragraph 76, we have uh, the third of John's seven discourses. And this is his teaching, discourse means teaching, teaching on the bread of life. And he instructs them concerning the bread of life. And here is the first of Yeshua's I am statements. Verse 35 of John's account. Well, it's all John. Verse 35, in which he says, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall not hunger. He that believes in me shall never thirst. I am the bread of life. That's the first of his I am statements. Those that are here, the multitudes that are with him that he's speaking to, this is the mass of people who were fed by him earlier, the 5,000 plus. And they're following him only because of the physical provision that he had provided for them earlier. Now, there are four things he offers them concerning this new kind of life as the bread of life. Here they are, verse 27. The first kind of life he is offering them is eternal life. He says in verse 27, Work not for the meat which perishes. That's why they wanted him, so that they'd have more physical food. He says, Don't work for that, but work for the meat which abides unto eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. The second kind of life he offers them is a heavenly life. Look at verse 32 and 33. He says, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Verily, verily, I say unto you, it was not Moses that gave you the bread out of heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life unto the world. He's speaking about himself as this bread of life. He'll give them eternal life. He'll give them a heavenly life. In verse 35, he tells them he'll give them a satisfying life. Verse 35, Yeshua said, I'm the bread of life. He that comes to me shall not hunger. And he that believes in me shall never thirst. And in verse 40, he says, he will give them a resurrection kind of life. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone that beholds the Son and believes on him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. And so there's a resurrection of our bodies that's involved with this kind of life. And notice that the focus is on faith for everyone that believes on him. Verse 40. And so the people don't understand what he is saying. Because remember, when he teaches the public, he teaches in parables so that they wouldn't understand. Even his own disciples don't understand. Just like the early parables of Matthew 13, now he teaches them that no one understands. He doesn't explain it to them because he means for them not to understand it. But to his disciples who he's teaching, he explains to them what he's trying to convey. The fact that the people don't understand him is seen throughout this text. Look at verse 28. They therefore said unto him, What must we do that we may work the works of God? And Yeshua said unto them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. So first of all, they don't understand what he is saying. So they're saying, Tell us more. Explain to us what is this work of God that we're to do. He tells us the work of God is that of believing. So that one is not saved by works, one is saved by faith. But they want to know what they must do in order to be saved. They need to have faith in him. If you look at verse 30, Yeshua said unto them, this is the work of God they believe. They said therefore unto him, what then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe? So they don't understand what, he, what he's talking about. He's not doing any signs anymore that they would see and believe because the leaders have already rejected him. They have to come to him personally on faith. 
in verse 44. He says, Yeshua said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which sent me draw him, and I will raise him up in the last day. They said, I'm come down out of heaven. They said, they don't know what he means. They said, is not this Yeshua, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I'm come down out of heaven? They're not getting this. Verse 52, the, the Jewish people therefore strove with one another, saying, how can this man give us this flesh to eat? They don't understand what he, what he means. And that's because their eyes are darkened. They'll understand when they believe. They won't understand first so that they can believe. They must believe first, then it will be open to them. And so he, he uh, explains to them, Yeshua is speaking parabolically, and the people don't understand what he's telling them. But this is his policy after paragraph 61 and the unpardonable sin. They understood the physical that he could provide them with food. They did not understand the spiritual, that he can provide them with eternal life. Now, what Yeshua is telling them is that his body is something they must digest. What he means is it's parabolic. He means they have to believe in him. They have to trust in him. He's not making a parallel, as often is said in churches, with the Lord's Supper or Communion. In fact, John doesn't even record the Lord's Supper or communion in his account in the upper room. And further, Yeshua doesn't make a comparison as the bread of life with unleavened bread that's eaten on Passover. He's making the parallel with the manna that fed the Jewish people in the wilderness for 40 years. So there's the compa- the, to connect this to the Lord's Supper is not reasonable in my opinion. So he tells them that what they need to do is to have faith in him. And that is what will open their understanding to what he is teaching and also which, what will result in their experiencing eternal life. In verses 36 and 38, and then Etan, you can share with us. In verses 36 to 38, in spite of the unbelief, of, uh, of the unbelief Messiah will accomplish his mission and many will nevertheless believe. Verse 36, But I said unto you that you have seen me, and yet you don't believe. That's the reason they can't understand. But all that which the Father gives me shall come to me. See, he'll complete his mission, and there will be some that will come to him. And him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. What a great passage on the security of the believer. We're never in danger of, quote-unquote, losing our salvation. Yeshua tells us, when we come to him, he will never cast us out. And it's kind of foolish to say we could cast ourselves out. Well, we can't even cast ourselves in. You know, we don't come in because all of a sudden we've come in. We've come in because God has called us. Yeshua said that. All who the Father gives me. So if the Father has given you to the Son, you can't now say, no, 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 I'm not being given. The Lord says, yes, you are being given. See, it's not a matter of you saying, give be to your son, Father. The Father said, look, I'm giving you to the Son and you find yourself believing by His grace. And thus, because the Father has, you have been given by the Father to the Son, the Son is not going to cast you out. And later, John's going, to, or Yeshua is going to record that, that we are in the Father's hand who is greater than all. And no man can snatch you out of the Father's hand. I know there are some who said, yes, but we can squiggle out somehow from our Father's hand. I said, good luck. You know, you can't do that. It's like saying, you're born, I'm going to unborn myself. 
You can't, you know, it doesn't happen. You can commit suicide, but you cannot commit unbornness. You cannot not be. You will be because God has brought you into being. So it's the same thing. When you're born again, born anew, made a new creation, old things are passed away, all things become new. You cannot unmake yourself. And therefore you cannot untake yourself, you know. And the scripture is clear. Who, he that has begun a good work in you will complete it. You know, in the day of Messiah. So those are all the wonderful promises. You know, I don't understand why people would want to uh, have us think otherwise. I understand some people say, oh, does that mean we can live any old way we want? No, it does not. Because the Lord has told us the reason he saved us is to make us like his son. How did his son work? To do the will of my father who sent me. So what the Lord is doing for us is not saving us so we could do anything we want. He's saving us so that we would do what His Son does, to be like Him. What does His Son do? His Son obeys the Father. So the idea that, oh, if you believe that you once saved, always saved, you can live any way you want. No, no, you, I don't believe that. I believe that once saved, always saved will lead me to become like His Son, which means more and more and more over time I'm going to desire to do the will of my Father. When I was younger in the faith, maybe I wasn't as desirous. Or when I've gone through some trials over my life, maybe during those trials I wasn't so desirous. But the rejoicing thing is, he who's begun the work in me will complete it. Maybe right now you're seeing me at a bad moment and in my life. Just like we look at Israel. God's chosen them, and we were there during the 40-year wandering. A bad time in their existence. But if we happen to be around during the Messianic age, we'll say, wow, what a wonderful thing. But there's a process. There's a, you know, there are transformations that takes place. There's time. That's what sanctification's about. It's the work of the Holy Spirit among a believer over time. You know, those are the three elements of sanctification. You have to be a believer. That's the first step. Second step, the Holy Spirit works in you. Third step, it's over time. And that's what sanctification is. Nothing mysterious about it. Nothing, super, you know, and supernatural is not the right word. Nothing mysterious, nothing mystical. It's very clear. You become a believer, the Holy Spirit indwells you and works in your life, and over time you become more like His Son. That's what it's all about. It's not, you know, having to tarry. You know, I've got to stay here and I've got to pray. I've got to pray. Look, we're closing the place up. I'll stay here. I'm staying up to five in the morning. I'm staying the next day. I'm going to be sanctified. No, no, no. You need a little bit more time than that. You know, you need like a lifetime. And that's what sanctification is. The work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer over their life. And then once we stand before him, we'll say, wow, look where I've become. And we'll rejoice over it. But the point here is, he whom the Father has given to the Son, he will not cast out. And by the way, I came to faith in a Nazarene church. You know, so the Nazarene church, if you know anything about them, is an Arminian church. They believe you can lose your salvation. So I, you know, I was taught this from my, the earliest days of my salvation, 17, 18, 19 years old. I got books on my shelf, you know. Um, what is one of them is called? Uh, if ye continue, you know. So it's all about the if passages. If ye continue in the faith, if you, you know. And so I understand all the uh, challenges to this. All I can say is I think they're wrong, and I think they're interpreting the Scripture uh, wrongly. Those passages are there, but there are explanations for them. Uh, now, I, I love my Nazarene brothers. Don't get me wrong on that one either, because I am grateful that it was in such a church context that somebody shared the good news with me, and I came to know 
uh, the Lord and to experience eternal life. As I began to study the word more, I said, you know, I disagree with what uh, the theology of this particular church. I don't discount them as believers. I don't crusade over there. I don't stand outside the door and say, hey, you believe in the wrong thing. You know, let God work with them. We're all, you know, we all see through glass darkly in some areas. Other areas, some of us are clearer. But the, the fact is that, you know, I respect uh, them as my brothers and sisters in the Lord. But I disagree wholeheartedly. And here's one of those reasons. Uh, one of those reasons why. So I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not asking you, if you know anyone who believes differently, set them straight. We, no, I'm not telling you to do that at all, you know. But I'm saying if you're here, this is what you're going to hear from, uh, from me. And uh, I hope you can find joy in that and cel- reason to celebrate the marvels of our, uh, of our salvation. And I hope that you would not take from that an excuse to live any way one wants because that's not the purpose of this. The purpose of this is to say, oh, I must live rightly for God because look what he's done for me. Not, oh, I can live any way I want because look what I got, you know, uh, something like that. I'm coming to you, Eitan. I haven't forgotten. But it, so in verse 36, in spite of the unbelief, Messiah will accomplish his mission. Many will believe. And uh, this many who will believe is, in, is a reference to the faithful remnant. And then Yeshua talks about eating his flesh, drinking his blood. And, of course, eating of his flesh, drinking of his blood is, is not meant to be understood literalistically. It's meant to speak about a deep abiding trust and faith in him. So that in verse 60, um, we get the response of the disciples outside the 12, outside the apostolic group. Verse 60, it says, many therefore as disciples, when they heard this, you mean we have to be like fully immersed in you? We have to make like a real commitment to you? I thought you were just going to make food for us and we're going to enjoy each other and go on our lives. You mean I have to really believe in you? I have to be fully invested in you? I have to fully digest you? I mean, you have to be everything to me? I mean, I have to love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? That's what he's trying to convey by this eating and drinking. You have to be uh, in me. You have to be connected to me. And by the way, this Sunday, I'm going to speak on one of the most profound passages of all the Bible, also one of the most difficult passages, Romans 5, 13 through 19, which speaks of our union with the Messiah. One of the things, it's really amazing teaching through this book because I really thought I knew the book. But, you know, now as I'm reading through it, I'm saying, I'm really learning so many new things. That's why when I come to speak, it's like, I've got to share this with you because this is really good stuff, you know. And one of the neat things that I've come to realize or maybe realize for the first time is that, you know, we think of salvation. The Lord has saved us. And that's true, but that's sort of, from Paul's perspective at this point, sort of a superficial way of thinking of salvation. What he tells us, read this, Matthew 5, I think, in Romans 5, I think it's, we went 11 and 12 last time, so I think at 13 through 19, is it's not just that he has saved us, but he has united us to himself. And that's why all the benefits of him is ours. We are one with him. We are in union with him. So that he makes the comparison. This comparison is just as in Adam all died. See, when you read it in English, we think, or when we read it, we think the comparison is in Adam we all die, in Messiah we all live. The comparison is, oh, in Adam we died, 
in Yeshua we live, but the comparison is not that. The comparison is we are in, Ad, in Adam, and now we are in Messiah. The ramifications of being in Adam is we died. The ramifications of being in Messiah is we have life. The comparison is not the death life. The comparison is the in Adam to the in Messiah. So they have to ask the question, what does it mean to be in Messiah? I mean, in Adam, you know, what does it mean? We are in Adam. And uh, that's what we're going to sort of explore together uh, on Sunday. So I'm really thrilled to kind of share some of the things because they're real complicated, you know, and they're very theological and philosophical in nature. So I'm going to like throw all this kind of stuff out on Sunday and we'll see where we land. But it's so it's so wonderful. And it's like if you can kind of get a dribble of it, it's it's like all of a sudden, wow, it's not just I invite the Lord in my life and I'm saved, you know. It's we've become united to him. Put it another way, there's only three uh, unions spoken of in the Bible. And so there's the union of the triunity of God, that they, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Messiah, the Father, and the Holy Spirit are united as one, though they are three persons, yet one God, they're united. And the other union that's spoken of is the union of Messiah's two natures. He's both human and divine. He's the God-man, that union of natures, union of persons. And then the next mysterious thing is the union of husband and wife. And then there's that union with Messiah. We're, you know, that's the, the incredible mystery that is beyond understanding. But it's our union with him that that necessitates, not only guarantees, but necessitates our security. Because if you're going to say you can lose yourself, that means you got to disu- we have to be disunioned somehow. That's like we have to be divorced. You know? I mean, the scripture is so contrary to all of those ideas. That's like thinking somehow the persons can d- break themselves apart from each other. That the two natures of Messiah somehow can be not unified anymore. Messiah, once he's the God-man, he's that for eternity. So when we in the Messianic age, he's no longer this, the Word. He's the Word made flesh. And he's, when we see him, we'll see him as the glorified man. You know? So he's, he, the union of his two natures is permanent. I mean, that, it's there. And the union of the persons in the Godhead, it can't be dissolved. So why we think our union with Messiah can be dissolved? Can't. And that's why Paul will go on to say, nothing can separate us from our union in Messiah. Nothing can, and you know, that is Paul's phrase. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Messiah. That's Paul's most common phrase in all the New Testament. In Messiah. Because what Paul's thing is that makes him Paul is that little phrase, in Messiah. We are united with Him. And another unique thing in Romans 5, it says, and I, I don't have the New Testament, but let me just show you this, and um, we'll get back to the Gospels. <laughs> but you can see, you know, my mind is like going on this. But in Romans 5, right, um, 5.10, it says, and not only this, But we also exalt in God through our Lord Yeshua the Messiah, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. You know, that's not a good translation. 
You know, it's, it, what it means, it, what he really says is, in whom we have now uh, received the reconciliation. And he says it also here in verse 10. He says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of the Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved in his life. It doesn't say by his life. It actually says in his life. So what saves us? The ultimate salvation thing is our union with him. It is we're saved by being in his life. His death paid the penalty. It provided for our liability. And then what saves us is our union with him, never to be dissolved. It's really kind of a neat thing. And that's what that's Paul's mantra. That's him, you know, being in Messiah. And that's why when people write, like the Galatians, and they say, no, we're saved by the works of the law. By circumstance. No, 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 no. It's being in Messiah. And how did we get in Messiah? It's by grace through faith, not by the works of the law. That's why he's so animus and antagonistic to that whole idea because then it does not necessitate union with the Lord. You know. Anyway, so let me finish this up here. Then, uh, so he talks about the need to be in union with him, eating his flesh, drinking his blood, believing in him. And the response is, I don't know, I didn't know I was signing up for that. In verse 60, many therefore said, I didn't know that's what you meant. Now that I know what you meant, uh, have a nice day. (laughs) So the response of the disciples is they leave. Verse 66, upon this, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. So, you know, when... Uh, pastors are pastoring in a congregation and they're really doing God's will and, so, and people leave, maybe it's not a bad thing. <laughs> you know, I mean, here, Yeshua's doing it all right, right? I mean, he's the Messiah and they're all leaving him. That wouldn't be encouraging to me. But for Messiah, it's part and parcel. Hey, you got to walk with me, you know? And so they, uh, they leave him. So one major result of this teaching was not that many of his disciples learned what Yeshua said and said, we need more of you, need more of you. No, they said, we're leaving. And so one of the results is they no longer followed him. So with that, many of them, it says, no longer followed him. So with that, Yeshua then turns to the twelve. See, now he wants to teach them. Verse 67. So Yeshua says, therefore, unto the twelve, will you go away also? Are you going to leave me too? And Peter answered, because he always stands up and answers and says, I love what he says, don't you? Lord, where are we going to (laughs) go? You know, where are we going? He says, you have the words of eternal life. And here's the wonderful thing he says. We have believed. He could have stopped there and Yeshua would have said, ah, you finally got it, Peter. That's what the lesson's all about. But he goes a step further, which is also quite encouraging. We have believed and we know that you are the Holy One of God. We know you're the Messiah. We know you're the one who is promised and the one who is sent. And so, and Yeshua said, but now here's the other neat thing that happens here. When he turns to the twelve, then he turns and said uh, to them, did not I choose you the twelve and one of you is a devil? Now he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he it was who should betray him, being one of the twelve. 
Judas's, this is the first time Judas is mentioned in terms of his betrayal. He's listed in the others, right? But now we get this first glimpse. Judas's apostasy begins here with the other disciples who said they would not follow him anymore. So now we know why Judas doesn't follow him. It's not because he expected him to deliver him from Rome. He didn't come through, so he wants to, be, you know, to get 30 pieces of silver so that he can tell Yeshua, please, you've got to destroy the Romans. That's what it's about. It has nothing to do with that at all, as a lot of the movies depict. The problem for Judas is he doesn't believe. And like his other disciples, he is among them, and he's walked away. And Yeshua already knows that. Because he says, isn't one of you a devil? Isn't one of you already going to betray me? He knows that he... It isn't like he lost his salvation along the way. He was like these others. He was following him. But he hadn't truly believed in him. And now he's going to hang with him. But he's not with him. He's going to be used so as to betray him. Eitan, sorry. Yes. Okay. Right, church goers, <laughs> right, Messiah goers, or something, right? Yeah, that's right, they're just followers. The, Connection. Yeah. The parallel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the whole that mysterious connection. Okay. No, what? what does it say? Oh, I don't know. Okay. 
What time? Anyone know the time? All right. So let's hold, let's stay there. Is that good? And uh, we'll. <laughs> okay. And what we'll do is we'll pick it up with uh, paragraph 77, Mark 7, Matthew 15, John 7, page 92 next time. Is that good? Okay. Well, let's pray. And then if anyone needs to leave, you can go. And uh, I'll stick around a little bit. And if there are any questions and I can answer them, I'll try. Father, we thank you for this night. Wonderful to sing songs of praise and worship to you. I thank you for Adam and Kyle and Scott for making that possible. And, Lord, we also uh, thank you for your word, the living word that has come down from heaven, that if we embrace, if we eat, if we respond to, if we believe with all of our heart, uh, Lord, we then experience eternal life, heavenly life, a resurrected life. And so, Father, may that be true for all of us, and may it also be true for those uh, we love who do not know you presently and whom we are sharing with. And I pray, Lord, you might open their hearts to you as well. So, Lord, we entrust uh, ourselves to you. Use us for your honor and glory uh, to make you known to those around us. For we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Jack, thank you.